Hello, and welcome to episode 120 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast, brought to you by Donors Trust. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law and Institute for the Study of Beekeeping. And hey, by the way, if you are listening to Law Talk through iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast platform, you may not know it, but this show is part of the Ricochet Audio Network run by Ricochet.com. And here's why you should join the Ricochet community. Membership starts at just $250 a month, and you'll be supporting many other podcasts just like this one. You can write your own posts or comment on thousands of other posts on every conceivable topic. Connect with conservatives from across the country and around the world. Ricochet is the home of smart and civil conversation on the web. You can even join or create your own Ricochet group and interact with others who have the same hobbies interests and pursuits. So check it out at ricochet.com slash join. You get one month free when you join at the Calvin Coolidge member level. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. So go to ricochet.com slash join right now and join the conversation. And you can hear the likes of John and me. Oh, my God. Indeed, but people won't know who you are because I've yet to introduce it. So I will start as I should with myself. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and composer of an as-yet-unstaged musical about the life of Benjamin Harrison, and I am joined, as always, by the Avenatti and Garagos of the conservative legal movement. Ouch! Topical. I don't even know who oh. these guys are, but so oh, long as you can be, 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 be happy in your ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, Visiting Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Uh, Fellas, I am going to jump headlong into this because I'm cognizant of the fact that Richard is in Chicago and John is in Philadelphia. So if I don't speed this along, the odds are pretty high that at least one of you will be murdered before we get off the air. <laughs> no, uh, I think Richard's going to stage a you fake bad information. I am in New York. Oh, Richard, you had to ruin that for me. I kind of suspected that, but I didn't know any other way to get into this, and it was worth it. The lie, frankly, was worth it as far as – Oh, I'm my concerned. God. We're going to have to run an investigation on you, <laughs> obstruction of information. Look at you taking it back up, giving me the transition I needed because never has an opening segment been easier to program, fellas. So we have the Mueller report, or at least we have the upshot of the Mueller report. We haven't actually seen it, uh, but we have seen the summary of it. Provided by William Barr, the attorney general, and as he characterizes it, Mueller found no evidence of collusion by the Trump campaign with the Russian government. As for obstruction of justice, the report in its own characterization, this is the quote, does not conclude that the president committed a crime. It also does not exonerate him. John, the president, is claiming total vindication. Is he right to be this jubilant? Uh, No, Uh, but it's also because uh, both he and Mueller are misusing the word exoneration. So one thing is I think the president has been completely vindicated on the claim of collusion. Mueller found – it's not that he didn't find any evidence of collusion. He didn't find any evidence sufficient to charge uh, the president or his closest aides with collusion. But I've always – I've been saying this for – Several months now on our show, if you look at the people like Manafort, et cetera, et cetera, who've been charged, none of them were being charged for things that had to do with any kind of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. But 
so that's not exoneration. That's just there was enough evidence to charge. However, I think Trump's probably right. Uh, on the obstruction, Trump can't claim exoneration. On the other hand, I think uh, Mr. Mueller actually went too far in saying he wasn't exonerating either. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not the job of a federal prosecutor to exonerate anybody. Their only job is to say, do we find enough evidence to charge someone? Do we think that they have committed a crime? If you don't find enough evidence, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that you can't prove it in a court before a jury. So Mueller should have actually said the same thing for both the obstruction and for the collusion investigations. And I think he went too far by saying he wasn't exonerating Trump. Put the, and the last thing I'll just say about this, just because if you look at the letter that Barr wrote summarizing Mueller's report closely, Mueller uh, he he just he, apparently he listed the pros and cons of uh, pursuing the president for obstruction, uh, but he didn't make a choice, which is very strange. Uh, Barr and Rod Rosenstein made the decision uh, that the president couldn't be prosecuted for. Obstruction. Uh, that's not an exoneration, but what it also leaves open is the possibility that Congress could either, uh, I mean, primarily through its impeachment power, could reopen all this about obstruction. And they could say, A, um, just because Mullen Rosenstein had that view doesn't mean we have that view. We think there's something fishy with that. <clears throat> or, and I think this is what will ultimately happen, B, the standard for impeachment. You know, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors is much broader and different than obstruction. So I don't think uh, this is. I don't think the president's been fully exonerated. Although I think Trump really gambled and won on most of it. But I think the story is going to keep continuing. Well, there's no question that the story will keep continuing. The question is whether or not uh, if you decided to basically give a clean bill of health with respect to the Russia collusion charges, is there anything left to the obstruction charges that you can uh, make credible? I never thought those charges were worth anything from the time that they were first filed, uh, given the fact that the president has the power of offer to dismiss people. Uh, there is no reason to believe that he blocked any evidence, no reason to believe that he thought Michael Flynn was guilty of anything uh, when he engaged in these various kinds of activities. So I think, in effect, if they are going to decide to investigate this particular issue in the original Mueller report, uh, then they have to give the same kind of retreatment to that that they gave to the basic obstruction, not the obstruction charge, the basic collusion charge. Uh, recall, what happens is the basic charge was investigate the election and then take anything that indirectly follows out of it. Uh, Mueller, I think, made one choice which is not defensible which is he said that nothing that had to do with the democratic abuses during the 2016 period, all of which related to the election, was subject to fair game. So I think he did the Democrats an enormous favor by not saying a single word on that stuff. When it comes to the obstruction situation, all the information that one wants to gather is already publicly available as far as I can tell. And the only issue is whether or not you could have it to definition of obstruction that is so broad that it means that a president cannot exercise the normal functions of his office. And more importantly, every time you use that broader definition, then it becomes even easier to say that all the host of Democratic characters, starting with Hillary Clinton back in 2005 when she was investigated by the FBI, going through Obama and going through everybody in the FBI during the campaign, 
did they obstruct justice when they did everything which was their level best to make sure that Hillary Clinton got a clean bill of health going into the election? I don't think they want to put themselves into that particular position where they basically use such a broad definition of obstruction, still fail, and then find out that the Republicans could come back and say, wait a second, you're right, there was a lot of unfinished business here, all which has to do with the other side of this investigation on the Democrats. Indeed, I think that the original charge that Rosenstein gave was completely incorrect. He should have said, we wish to investigate the influence of the Russians and possible collusion with either party. He did it only with respect to Trump. And there's no reason a priori to assume that was the only thing that was going on in that case. That should be a subject for investigation. So I think, in effect, the Democrats will try to keep this alive. Uh, John mentioned impeachment. They are free to try to impeach on any grounds whatsoever. Uh, There is, I think, a standard of what high crime and misdemeanor means, but there's no operative way to make that go except for the Senate to reject the charges when they are made against the president. My view is that Ms. Pelosi will not allow that to go forward. Because I think once you see how flimsy the evidence turns out to be, um, that will be treated as petty and vindictive. The Democrats will become unworthy of trust, which they are already in my particular view, and that they will put themselves at risk in the next election. So I think any talk of impeachment as being part of this Congress is a big mistake. I don't think it will happen. I think what will happen is there will be lots of low-level investigations on the part of the Democrats to turn this, that, and the other thing up. But the real action is going to take place in the Senate because that's relatively virgin territory on the Democratic side where what the Democrats have to do in the House is look for crumbs that were omitted in the uh, Mueller report. The Democrats want that report to come out. That's fine by me, although I think there's some innocent people who may be hurt by it. But the more that it comes out, the less room there's going to be for them to continue a new investigation of what's going on. I think they are terribly misplaying their hand on this particular situation. They should cut their losses and turn their attention to something else. They should not spend their time uh, basically making fools of themselves. And what they should do is tell all their many supporters, all of whom were completely confident of what the particular result would be, uh, that, hey, you guys got it wrong. I have in front of me a wonderful chart called Mueller Madness, and it's an NC AAC with 64 <laughs> players seated. Um, who was number one? Who was number eight? And so forth. So we get Alec Baldwin and Rachel Maddow heading up two particular divisions and so forth. I think the Democrats are going to expose themselves to more and more abuse of this particular sort uh, because they were so colossally wrong. Not colossally wrong up to the at the beginning, but up to March 24th. When they all announced, boom, uh, the indictment's going to come. I have no idea what universe they were in. It certainly was not the one that I had. As I've said repeatedly on this show and on reasonable disagreements with um, Adam White, I didn't think there was anything in the record that remotely sounded like collusion. There was lots of evidence about Russian misdeeds uh, that everybody conceded, but linking the two dots together proved, as I think was correctly done, to be impossible. John, let me ask you about the Democratic reaction, what you've heard from a lot of liberals in the media, what you heard from Nancy Pelosi addressing her caucus the other day. 
the sort of uh, uniform fallback position has become, I guess, temporizing fallback position. Look, all we have to go on at this point is a letter from an attorney general who only got his job because he wrote a memo justifying this expansive notion of presidential powers that would insulate Donald Trump from everything. We need to see this whole thing because at the moment we are taking it all on faith from a guy that we shouldn't be trusting at all. What's your read of that diagnosis? Well, the first – I think you're quite right, Troy. It is temporizing. I think the Democrats uh, are really in a hole because they – Put all their eggs in the Mueller basket, and so uh, you know they. And I think they they were in a way right to uh, put a lot of faith in Mueller because Mueller sir is the gold standard for prosecutors. It was Trump, I think, who made the mistake at constantly attacking Mueller because, as, as we talked about before on the show, if Trump if Trump, Mueller cleared Trump, <laughs> this is the best thing that could happen. So, what if you're the Democrats now? You need time to regroup. I think uh, they do have. One – I think they have one good argument in all of the things I've been seeing that have been pouring out, which is uh, – now, Mueller, he collected all the evidence, and he clearly thought deeply about whether there was enough to indict uh, the president or his aides on obstruction. And he uh, – you know, in the law, sometimes we call it dubitante or equipoise. Mm-hmm. He just didn't know he, – he was in balance. He didn't know what to do. Right, and Mueller, I think, is a play it by the book kind of guy. Um, so the Democrats say, "Well, how could Barr and Rosenstein have decided in the course of just two days, just reviewing the Mueller report, not even looking at the underlying evidence that Mueller looked at, and decide to not charge?" Uh, so I think there's, you know, they. I mean, I think they have reasonable hay to make about that, but I think they're misjudging Barr because I think if they they plan to try to call Barr and Rosenstein up for hearings and browbeat Barr and claim that he was politically motivated. I don't think that's going to work. I think Barr is a tough guy. I think when you saw those hearings during his confirmation, he kind of looked like the adult in the room and the, you know, the Mm -hmm. democratic centers going after him looked like a bunch of kids. And I I think that I think Barr could really turn the tables on them if they go after, go after him for this decision. I think the Democrats, if they do want to, Pursuit would just be wiser to continue oversight and even sort of quasi-impeachment hearings and try to see what they can shake loose from the tree of all the other scandals other than the Russia collusion. <laughs> That's the other thing, right? Mueller is only there to investigate Russia collusion. All the other stuff, Stormy Daniels, campaign contributions, the Trump organization, you know, that's still all fair game. That's not you – know, in fact, Mueller covered a lot of it and handed it off to the federal prosecutors in uh, New York, but that's still you – know, that's not touched by Mueller. Yes. Look, I, I take the following position. I don't think there's anything in the report on obstruction that matters. All the factual allegations have been out there for months and for years. Uh, These were events that all happened after the election took place. They involved only a very small number of individuals. They were extensively reported in the press. The hard question is the legal question is whether or not you can define obstruction so broadly as to cover the president's decision to fire somebody within the scope of his presidential authority when it turns out that he does nothing to alter or to 
to spoilate evidence? And I think, in effect, that the answer to that question is no. And so I don't care what the Mueller report says. I cannot conceive that it came up with some facts uh, that really mattered on this. If, for example, it turns out that Trump had a memo from Flynn which says, I did something illegal, boss. Uh, what I did is I talked to the Russians and promised that I would give them Crimea if they gave us Tennessee or something of that sort. <laughs> yeah, well, can they give That would be such a good deal. Oh, boy. Then you got yourself some corruption. Uh, but I think, in effect, what, what Mueller did was essentially a, a disservice. If he decides to investigate that, in full and treat it on a par with the earlier stuff. If he reaches conclusions about his judgment, he should say them both. They're not final judgments. So if it turned out that this was, say, a Democratic um, district attorney who got the Mueller report and said, I reject these conclusions and I'm going to go ahead and prosecute, there's absolutely nothing that anybody could have done uh, to override that particular decision. What you do is you take the report and all the information that it contains or all the information that is in the report that you get from other sources and you beat the living held out of the attorney general for bringing a case like that. But I just don't think that there's anything uh, there in this particular case. As I've said many times and elsewhere, there are some very serious obstruction cases. They go back at the very least to March of 2015 when the FBI gave uh, Mrs. Clinton an incredible sweetheart deal. They allowed her to keep her chief aides in the room when they were doing interrogation. They gave her questions in advance. They didn't do anything when it turned out she selectively destroyed records. A classic case of obstruction of the defense that they were only related to my daughter's wedding is not a defense. Uh, The question of relevance is not to be determined by the potential accused or the target of investigation. It's to be determined by the government. So you want to talk about obstruction. You have to explain to me why Trump, who didn't destroy anything, is going to be charged on an impeachable offense at the same time that Mrs. Clinton has gotten a pass now for four years. So I don't think that this is going to amount to anything. I think, in effect, that what Barr did was correct under these circumstances. It's not that he just got the information that was relevant to the decision two days with the report. He had all that information from thousands of sources um, independent of the particular report in question, and there is absolutely nothing there. It would have been a scandal if he had decided to recommend something with respect to obstruction. And remember, he doesn't have necessarily to um, go after the president on obstruction charges. You can concoct some scheme with some assistance to the president who doesn't have immunity or some person who helped him with the decision who doesn't have immunity can be charged with aiding and abetting obstruction. Uh, but I don't think that there was anything in that. I think they did exactly the right things. I think if the Democrats tried to go after them, In a congressional hearing, what they will do is they will get an earful of all the reasons why it is that the claim is completely misguided. And it turns out the smart thing that uh, will happen by Barr is he will defend his decision not by saying I made it. He'll defend it by saying I'm right. John, Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee now, has said that he's going to launch an investigation into the origins of this whole controversy. He's particularly talked about – Looking into why the surveillance warrants against Carter Page were issued, that was in response to the now famous dossier. He's also questioned why the FBI didn't go straight to the Trump campaign and warn them about Russian agents trying to get into their orbit. Is this, in your judgment, a worthwhile endeavor or ought the Republicans just sort of let this go cold now that we have a prospect of getting at least some of this controversy behind us? 
Mm. I, just real quickly, I do agree with Richard, by the way, that uh, the president firing Comey or using his constitutional authority is not obstruction. I don't know what else Mueller has other than the public events. That's what I think is still left to be found out. But yeah, based on the public evidence so far, I don't think the president's committed obstruction. But you know, getting to your point, I think that's a real the part of the root of the matter. Uh, I don't think it's just a job for Congress. I think there's an inspector general report going on, investigation going on at the Justice Department uh, right now. There could be criminal uh, investigations that will rise from that, but I, I do think Graham is right. I would not have believed this when all of this started, that actually a campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign, a, a presidential campaign paid for – uh, basically, a pack of lies <laughs> generated by a foreign intelligence agent, and then somehow managed to, kind of, you know, distribute it within the government and in the press in Washington, and it became the basis for spying on her opponent's ca- campaign, Donald Trump's campaign, using FISA. Uh, it is exactly what FISA was designed to stop. FISA was created in the wake of Watergate actually to prevent another Nixon from using the intelligence and law enforcement agencies to spy on, on other candidates. That's it. And I, uh, I was part of the team at Justice that worked on loosening FISA so that it could be used more effectively against terrorists. We never thought – that the lessons of Watergate would have to be relearned again. So I think that, uh, yes, it would be very uh, it would be beneficial, not just for Trump, but for the Justice Department and for the country for that to go on. But I don't know if it's necessarily Congress that needs to do it. It might actually be even the kind of thing for which a president and Congress could get to their, together and create a commission much like the ones we had after uh, the Iran Contra affair, or after the Iraq WMD, uh, which you know, an independent presidential commission has the power of subpoena for hall witnesses before it, um, and that can really get to the bottom what happened, and then make recommendations to how we have to overhaul our intelligence agencies. Because I've been shocked at the performance of the FBI uh, in, throughout all of this. Well, I think some people at the FBI surely ought to be prosecuted. I'm not comfortable enough with the cast of characters to remember all of them. Andrew McCabe or whatever it is who was responsible. Peter Strozak. Somebody clearly knew that the information in that dossier was false. They knew they had to use it because what happens was they had gotten several warrants beforehand. If you want to get another warrant, you cannot simply say, well, we have one, two, and three warrants. And somebody says, well, did you learn anything that justifies us to give you another time on this? They'd say, no, you have to come up with something. And so it turns out that this thing was not just an add-on. It was the pivotal thing at the, at the margins. Anybody who signed that warrant and who knew that it was contained fake or insubstantial information, it seems to me to be a fair charge for obstruction of justice. And that would be some very, very high people. The question that I have is not whether they're guilty. I think they are. The question is whether or not we really want to put this nation through another kind of 
tumultuous prosecution of this sort, which are going to give rise to incredible partisan hostilities or not. So maybe what should happen is the attorney general should announce that he's going to prosecute whoever it is he's going to prosecute. And Mr. Trump, out of his magnificence of his idea, will give them a pardon for their particular sins before the trial starts. <laughs> well, you wow. never How do you like that? I mean, I'm just always filled with bright ideas, some of which even I don't believe. But I, I look, I think this is much more serious. Uh, I regarded bowing back all the way through before the election and that the Democrats had stonewalled on every one of these particular issues. I mean, I've taught criminal procedure. I've taught military criminal procedure. I've taught uh, substantive criminal law. I could not possibly imagine how you could come away from those particular situations and not think that there was something very seriously wrong afoot. Just the way I think the charges of obstruction against Trump were very bad. And this, I think, is what's so terrible about the press. I cannot think of too many people who are anti-Trump, like I am in many, many issues, not all, but many issues, who then turn around and say, you know, I really don't like this guy. I wish he would beat in the election. I certainly oppose his policy here, but I don't think he committed any crime. Uh, what I find so depressing about all of this is that the general distaste that people had towards the man allowed them to influence their judgment as to whether or not he'd engaged in some form of obstruction or some form of collusion. That's a very bad way in which to conduct your own thinking. You must always separate your politics from your principles of legality. And as I said, that wonderful chart that's put out of the 64 of various peoples in four separate divisions, the Twitterers, the newspaper <laughs> guys, the online guys i mean there's 64 names there and i've heard a 60th and <laughs> there's not one of them who is essentially somebody who was pro-trump all right so speaking of general distaste i, I want to get you guys to another topic that's emerged since last week talk which was this big and, and kind of absurd college cheating scandal that was going on where wealthy people were paying a, a quote-unquote consultant to help get their kids into elite schools, and they'd, they'd find ways to cheat on entrance exams or they'd bribe university officials to classify them as student-athletes when they weren't. And I guess because we live in an awful universe, the fact that a couple of C-level celebrities were involved in this has given it extra legs. So uh, let's talk about the legal implications here. Apart from the ringleader and the coaches and the parents, all of whom are, are facing various kinds of charges, but there has subsequently been an effort to file a class action suit on behalf of kids who were denied admission to these schools. The argument being that by dint of the cheating, these kids were wasting their time and money and were denied seats at these universities that they otherwise may have gotten into. Uh, there's also another suit from a couple of students at Stanford who say that in addition to the fact that they got turned down by other elite schools, the fact that they're now at Stanford, which is one of the schools involved in this scandal, their degrees are now going to be devalued by the, the taint of the scandal. Richard, do either one of these have a shot in the courts? Look, this is America. Everybody has <laughs> That's <laughs> something, however, preposterous. I would dismiss these cases absolutely out of hand. Um, uh, so let's start with the first one. Uh, there have probably been, what, 100 students, 200 students involved in this. 
um, who were involved in, let us say, 20, 30, or 40 universities. Uh, it turns out, just to take one place, Harvard took about 2,000 students in and turned down about 32,000 students. So essentially what you're saying, out of that 32,000, there may have been six who might have gotten in um, over a period of 20 years. Uh, the idea that you would want to treat this as a causation of particular injury, I think, is crazy. If you wanted to do anything, you should say Harvard should set up a $10,000 fund in order to create new scholarships for people who are worthy, which of course they do anyhow. I think the really important thing to see what the universities have done is how well they've cleaned house. And I would say, as far as I can tell, this is a no-brainer for them. They understand just how much their reputations depend upon their operating a basically an honest system. I get letters from Peter Salve at Yale. I think he's a terrible president on many issues. He's done exactly the right thing on this particular one. We named the coaches who were corrupted. Uh, we are certainly going to dissociate ourselves with the students who get in in this particular fashion. We're going to renew our efforts in the future to make sure that any person who gets on an athletic scholarship, for example, is going to be doubly vetted to make sure that it's not corrupt. On and on. I think, in effect, uh, and all of these cases, the thing that really drives you is reputation. These institutions are worth, you know, several billion dollars. The reputation, if you could calculate that, of a Harvard or Yale name is probably in 10, 20 billion dollar range. And they understand that this is going to taint it and they're going to do everything within their power to stop it. So I think that this kind of a lawsuit is absolutely crazy. All right. Then the other lawsuit that you mentioned, oh, dear me, I'm now with Stanford and my reputation has been tainted. Well, one of the things that you have to ask is how many people are going to apply next year given the taint in the reputation? I think the answer is going to be exactly the same who apply uh, this particular year. Why is that? Because the reputation has indeed been tainted, but at the same time it's been tainted, the restorative measures are already in place. And if you ask these people how many of them are going to depart from Stanford and go to the University of Santa Clara so they can escape the sting associated with the Stanford name, the number of people who will leave is exactly zero under these circumstances. This is one of the things that really hit you right in the solar plexus. The criminal charges are fully justified. The social response is fully justified. I regard any ingenious plaintiff's lawyer who's trying to do this as somebody who's going to turn a serious issue into a farcical one. And I'm afraid that lawsuits like this will dilute the moral outrage which rightfully attaches to the individuals who did such unprincipled, illegal, and immoral things. John, I'm assuming as Berkeley faculty, your diagnosis of this is that it was a positive good for these kids that they didn't end up at UCLA. <laughs> or USC. <laughs> or USC. Actually, let me ask you about – so there's a USC angle to this. So one of the – apart from them being one of the schools, so the reaction afterwards, one of the proposals that we've seen in the wake of the scandal has been from uh, Ron Wyden, the liberal senator from Oregon, who has proposed stripping the tax benefits for parents – who are donating money to colleges that their children are attending or colleges that their kids are going to try to get into. I don't know how you enforce that. but yeah, So he, he ended up with a, a good news hook for this, though, the other day because Dr. Dre, the rapper and producer, posted on social media a picture of his daughter saying that she got into USC all on her own 
And then someone pointed out that Dr. Dre had been part of a $70 million donation to the school about five years ago. So (laughs) there is this sense that there's this fundamental injustice where people can sort of buy their kids way in. Is this something to your mind that is is crying out for a government corrective? I I actually have two uh, unusual – I think hopefully unusual things to say about One is that once we left the world of test scores and grades – then everything became possible. I really attribute a lot of this to as a byproduct of the diversity era of college admissions. Once the Supreme Court and universities say, oh, you know, you can sort of racially manage the appearance of your class because we think it produces ideological diversity. Well, why does it just have to, why is it just race? Why can't it be wealth? Why can't it be, right? You could, uh, you, once you start considering any factors other than uh, quality of education and scores and determine you know, all that stuff, then the door just becomes wide open. So that's one. Two, and this is what I love about America. These were just rich people who were rich, but they still wanted a discount because, right, <laughs> they could have done like you're saying Dr. Dre did. They could have given $6 million to some university, and their kid probably would have gotten in anyway if they bought the school a building. But they didn't want to pay $6 million. They wanted to pay $600,000, even though they, they wanted a 90% off bargain on getting bribing their way into, kid, into college. And that's, that's the other weird thing about it. Everybody knows that you can uh, give money to these universities, and the odds of your kid getting in are going to go up. They're probably going to go way up. No one knows uh, for sure, but you know, in the Harvard admissions lawsuit – uh, it's becoming clear that there is a special category for people who give a lot of money to Harvard University, for example, and their chances of getting in are extremely high, much higher than regular people, much higher than legacies or athletes. So, well, Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Richard. Look, my view about it is this is exactly one of the harmful consequences that take place. We have used traditional forms of fundraising for years, hundreds of years in many cases. Occasionally, there's a little irregularity, but this was not traditional fundraising. This was essentially trying to bribe, lie, and cheat, and I think that that has to be distinguished. So let me take the position of a university administrator or a dean. I'm running a law school. I've got a kid, and what he does is his basic index is 89, when in order to get in on the straight marriage, you got to be 90. But I know this person comes from a family who has given $10 million to the university over the last 10 years, and do I give that extra point in order to let that person in, whether or not he actually asks for a favor? And my answer is, you're darn straight, I give that particular benefit. Another $5 million come in, now we can give more scholarships, more facilities, more laboratories, more tenured faculty, the whole thing. Is this a trade-off worth doing, Uh, giving up one point on an index in order to get $10 million in cash? I don't lose any sleep over that at all. I have actually been in the position as an admission director to law school where you have to do these kinds of things. And so what is it? The answer is you don't have a per se bar, but what you do is you have a very tight window and you tell the dean, look, we know you want to do this maybe once a year, every other year and so forth. I don't want to see a dean coming down to the admissions office with 15 people in a class of 150 who are going to get it under this particular message. So what do you tell the dean? You say, look, 
But the guy who is one point below the scale, what you do is you let him into our particular institution, and we hope that the Gantt will come. You don't want to make it into a quid pro quo when you never do. You never have to. But suppose you get a guy who's 10 or 12 points below, and there are hundreds of kids between them. Well, you get on the phone and you say, here's the son of such and such. He can't get into our institution. It turns out I'd hope that you would give him an interview at your institution where he meets the standards of admission, and then you tell that to the parents, they bring them there, and something happens. I don't think that's illicit, but there are other strategies that you use to help donors instead of just admitting their kids into school. And I've seen cases at institutions where there have been two children. Um, one gets in, the other does not on the same family. And it's right because what you do is you pick the right one out. I've heard of cases in which there's a large gap and you let them both in and you see the consequences with the bad student. You don't want to do this. You need judgment in working these cases and having been in a university and having done all of this stuff, the thought that we would want to take a scandal involving 30 people, involving nothing to do with traditional stuff, and then decide that we're going to revolutionize the way in which alumni is giving is sheer madness. This is exactly why it's so dangerous. Somebody like Mr. Wyden probably has never been within a thousand yards of a university, probably has horrible judgment to begin with. Uh, But when you run these things – You try to do it low-key. You try to give a little bit of room. You constantly push back on this. Richard, let me – but here's a hypothetical for you. I got a hypothetical. Suppose that a school – this is what bothered me. So put aside – and this is what bothers people is that this was a third-party guy who took money from these parents and then he bribed university administrators. Suppose a university – let's call it USC – said – you know what? <laughs> Don't say let's I get this. Let's USC. get this third party out of the way, and just we're going to establish a schedule, and we're going to publish, you know, in public <sighs> how much money it takes to increase their percentages of getting in. And so, you, I mean, why not be public about exactly what you just said? So, if you give five hundred thousand dollars, then your odds of getting in go up X percent. And if you go, if you give five million dollars in. Your kid's in, no matter what their test scores are. Oh, my are. God. What a disaster. <laughs> I mean, but that's just putting out in the open. I mean, I, I, let just me give you the – just described what's going on. No, no, no. I, it's good, not a good capitalist that John is. He's trying to come up with Uber for college bribery. Yes, I mean, look, <laughs> my friend Bob Ellickson once uh, put forward the following proposal. Okay. Yeah, law school is a very Other desirable place. <laughs> no, no, at, you, at Yale, very desirable. So we're going to have the following fellowships. We will give the Holmes Prize to that scholar who's Parents have contributed $100,000 to the law school. We will give the Cardozo Prize to somebody who's given $50,000 to the law school and so on down the line. And so you make it very clear. What happens is you just cannot do that. First of all, if you put that kind of recognition on the thing, nobody will pay a dime for being marked as an inferior student. What you want to do is to make it essentially anonymous. And this is extremely important. You're running a class. You've got a lot of nervous kids there. The last thing you want to do is to have a formal set of distinctions among students so that every time a decision has to be made by an administrator as to whether you're not give somebody sick leave or let them drop a class or take an extracurricular activity, all of this stuff is going to be publicly on the record. There's going to be a lot of tension even if it's not on the record. It will be impossible to do if it's on the record. Secondly, we have no way to particularly enforce a probabilistic judgment. Uh, one says that if you give $10 million, there's a 10% chance 
greater chance that they'll get in. You don't know whether this kid is moving from 10 to 20 or from 90 to 100 because you have no idea what the baseline is. What you need to do essentially is to understand that this is a case in which you have to use judgments. You cannot use rules to start to deal with it. And what happens is the response that they want to do could perhaps cost universities. Well, my point a- is just, it's just why not have it in public? See, I think because what happens is the moment it becomes about it. No, it, it's, it's always going to be because the unseemliness of the current situation where you know about the situation but you don't know about the parties is essentially necessary to make sure that once the class is assembled uh, that you're not going to have public signs of favoritism which is going to make it much more difficult to run the way in which the school is organized. You know, I have John Benedine a little bit and, you know, you still... Chicago, <laughs> Chicago still... Still it's recovering. Still recovering. It's still, <laughs> still clearing out the rubble. Yeah, but, but what you realize is that on all these kinds of admissions programs and so forth, um, discretion is the soul of valor. And confidentiality turns out to be an important way. What you really need to do is to have people inside the university who have the right set of values when it comes to these things so it doesn't get out of control. Now, in this particular case, a third party comes along. <coughs> and offers money on behalf of somebody else, you just turn that down absolutely categorically. It simply doesn't work. Now, yeah, how no, does I it work? I totally agree. I think that the, what was going on was fraudulent and I mean, bribery, but I'm just saying, what if the people just paid the university and said... No, it's the same. Okay, can I... I wait, wait, so. wait a minute, guys, because we're, we're, so we're, we're running out of time, and I want to I move us on into the next topic, but before I do that, I, can I just leave us with one observation here? So there, as I've mentioned a couple of times, there are eight schools that were that were identified as being part of this. Yale, which is the only Ivy League entrant, uh, Wake Forest, Stanford, Georgetown, UT Austin, USC, UCLA, and the University of San Diego. This is not UC San Diego. This is the private Catholic school in San Diego. So the admissions rate at the University of San Diego is 52%. It's already like 50%, isn't it? If you are bribing your way into the University of San Diego, there is more than one person in that family in need of some education. (laughs) All right. Let me pause right here for a word from our friends and our sponsors at Donors Trust. You know, a lot of us are doing our taxes right now and realizing that the new tax law reduced many of the deductions that we used to take. But you can still take advantage of one deduction that Congress didn't touch. That's the charitable deduction. Do your charitable giving the smart way with a donor-advised fund from Donors Trust. Donors Trust will help you maximize your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. A donor-advised fund acts as your personal charitable savings account. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with you in mind, someone who believes that limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise are bedrock values worth fighting for. Now, I know you don't give just for the tax breaks, but those you otherwise might. That means you can have a greater impact in support of your community, your faith, and your ideas. So don't wait. Set aside those charitable dollars now and do it with the partner that shares your values, Donors Trust. Download your free prospectus at donorstrust.org slash ricochet to see how Donors Trust can help you minimize your taxes and more importantly, maximize the impact of your charitable giving. That's donorstrust.org slash ricochet and our thanks to Donors Trust for sponsoring. All right. So as we wrap up here, a case we haven't had the chance to talk about yet. This one is so weird, has so many twists and turns. Jesse Smollett, the actor from the show Empire, which Richard, I know is one of your favorites, has had a rough couple of months. So Smollett, who is African-American and gay, 
claimed in January that he had been the victim of a hate crime in Chicago, that he had been the subject of racial and homophobic slurs, that his two attackers had yelled out, this is MAGA country, which this part of Chicago decidedly is not, (laughs) and had poured bleach on him and put a noose around his neck. Now, a lot of people said that this seemed fishy from the start. Turned out, as time passed, that Smollett had actually paid these guys to fake a hate crime. He was trying to raise his visibility, supposedly to get more money out of the network for his, his salary. Then he ends up getting indicted on 16 counts of disorderly conduct, and then today the prosecutors all of a sudden drop all the charges. Rahm Emanuel is really angry. The Chicago police chief is pissed off. So uh, let's actually just start by rewinding this a little bit to the original charge. Um, John, 16 counts of disorderly conduct. As a non-lawyer, I hear that and think, A, how on earth do they get to 16 charges? And B, is disorderly conduct really the crime here? This is not the kind of behavior that that phrase brings to mind. So just walk us through the legal particulars here. Yeah, actually, there's a whole bunch of other things he's got a problem with. So (laughs) the first one is filing a a false police report. Right. Right. Then lying to investigators, because I don't know if you remember, but, you know, the police sent over – Went over to his apartment. They searched his place. They looked at the evidence. He provided false evidence. So think about like all the a lot of the things that the people Mueller's charged have gone to jail for. It's lying to police officers, basically. So every time he does that, you know, he's running a few more years in jail. Then he actually, I don't know if you remember this, but before the uh, fake attack, he also this is so bizarre. He mailed himself. A white powder and claimed it was anthrax. Yes, and like <laughs> so, a letter, a letter with the letters cut out, threatening his yeah, life. Yeah, like, yeah, like some, like some kind of like old, like the Zodiac killer yeah. movie, right? And so that's actually the use of the males to you know commit a fraud. So you know he's he you know put aside the disorderly, you know he is probably you know normally would be looking at somewhere. You know, between five and ten years in jail with all that stuff added up, and the police usually try to go after people who do things like this because, right? If if people in the public start to see that they can get away with, um, you know, getting the police to rush to people's houses just on made up pretenses, you know, the police are going to be run, you know, left and right all over the city of Chicago, even more so than they are now with all the real murders and attacks uh, going on. And so this is the thing – Richard's the one who's been the longtime resident of Chicago. I do not get, given all the evidence that was made public by the police, how this guy is not being prosecuted. I mean they have him dead to rights. I mean the, the evidence showed – I mean they produced it all at the press conferences. They, the police found two guys who worked on the set of this guy – of this Smollett guy's TV show who they have video – they not just have video leaving the scene where the alleged attack occurred. But but this guy they they have because these guys are millennials they used Uber to go from their apartment <laughs> to the place and so there's an Uber receipt showing the exact trip they took to the location where they were supposed to allegedly beat up Smollett and then Smollett this is the other great thing he pays them with personal checks <laughs> so, I mean this guy they have him dead to rights there shouldn't even be a trial. So how it's possible that the prosecutor is not going to bring charges? It makes it it just reinforces the image of Chicago as a totally corrupt city. 
Look, I am utterly in awe of a man who has followed this story with this level. Of- <laughs> and and I agree with you. I mean, essentially, uh, you, this case is proved beyond a reasonable doubt on the basis of, of, of kind of indisputable evidence. I cannot understand why the charges were dropped. I also agree with John uh, that when you start to make false charges to a police officer to divert resources, it's a real, to use a phrase that we've never heard before, obstruction of justice by sending them off on wild goose chases. It is also a huge reputational hit to the city of Chicago because now, in effect, what happens is it's got a kind of a racist image that it doesn't belong. Uh, We know, by the way, that these things are not unprecedented. There have been many incidents of so-called racial injustice which have been planted by individuals who want to charge other people with being racial. And so uh, you're in one group and you simply said that you've been molested in your dormitory, but it's been entirely set up by you, uh, this sort of self-criminalization in an effort to get attraction to your cause, to make yourself look like a victim, is a very important thing. I am just utterly incomprehensible to me why they should drop this. I, mean, I have not followed this story uh, to the extent that John has. I'm not as much of a celebrity hound as my good friend is. I have other oh. things to do with my... Oh, yes, it is wow. true, John. You are a celebrity. Shots fired. Shot before the bow. I, I, I seek to understand I, I mean, I America. I that's such a high rate of return that somebody can do this stuff and put it to such positive and informative use. So if all celebrity hounds were as, as knowledgeable as you, the world would indeed be a better place, even though I would never rank particularly high on that particular derby. But I'm just – I mean – was there any explanation? I'm going to ask the, the savant himself, John. Did the prosecutor <laughs> dropped all the charges explain why? No, no. There's been no real explanation as far the as I know. The only rationale that was in the press a little, and I think this was by a, a spokesperson, not the prosecutor themselves, was, well, you know, we have to prioritize violent crime. This guy oh, doesn't this have a record. He's community service. He's paid a fee. Why bother going to the trouble of putting this through the system? And put this man in jail? Pour encourager les autres, as they say in French, to encourage the others not to engage in this stuff. I mean, this is a, a, a actually a serious debate. John and I have had this. Um, you have prosecutorial discretion. We realize that you certainly can prioritize on the strength of cases within even classes, but does prosecutorial discretion say that the most egregious case in a given class can be dropped entirely if it turns out you think violent crimes are a priority? In effect, that looks awful much like an administrative repeal of an entire substantive law regime, which we should not be particularly happy about. And so I don't think that that is a sufficient justification. I think it's a justification for saying we do more of the other cases than of this. <clears throat> but given the high pri- the high publicity of this and the reputational losses, the message that I take away from this is it's an open invitation for anybody to do something truly dangerous in this particular form, and no prosecutions are going to take place. So I am aggrieved and disappointed. At the intersection of people writing stupid checks and celebrity culture, what this makes me think of, do you guys know the Jerry Springer story? Uh, who's Jerry Springer? Jerry? So Jerry Springer sprang to the forefront of American consciousness in the 90s, I guess, as sort of the low watermark of trashy daytime television talk shows. This was all the paternity tests and people screaming at each other and things like that, which you is the way that most people – I didn't watch it, Richard, regularly, but (laughs) what most people don't know about Jerry Springer, this is the only context they're familiar with him from, 
Jerry Springer started out as a politician in Cincinnati in the 70s. In fact, he was the mayor of Cincinnati briefly. But before he was the mayor of Cincinnati, he was a city councilman in Cincinnati, and he had to resign that seat because of a scandal in which he sought the services of multiple prostitutes, and he paid them with personal checks within the memo line, the phrase, for services rendered. And that was what oh, I didn't I did. know that. This is what that. I did Jerry Springer's career as a Cincinnati city councilman, although not by much. But if he'd been, been running in Chicago, I mean, come on now. That's just like a campaign ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are we sure that this is a negative guy, huh? <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're a fan of transparent government, Jerry Springer's your man. All right. No, as a matter of fact, I was ironic about all of this. I think what should happen to Mr. UC is he should now be admitted to college. <laughs> all right. So uh, exit question because we're at the end of our hour here. If the upshot of the past few years is that Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Michael Avenatti, and Mark Garagos all end up in prison, will it all have been worth it? No. John, John's pausing. I know. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> There's so many other people who probably deserve the same fate whom time is like. time for you to give us that list. Yeah, I well, guess it's not worth it. You would hope the system would have caught them anyway. Well, this well, is the, right, especially I mean, with Catcher. Well, isn't Avenetti under indictment for some unrelated charges as we speak? Extortion. Nike. No, extortion, right? So you get them on something else. I mean, look, one of the reasons why I've always been comfortable with the beyond a reasonable doubt is because you say, well, it's better that 10 innocent people go free than one guilty is convicted. Most of these guys are serial offenders. So if you miss them one time, you'll get them the next. And I think that's going to be true of Abinetti. My guess is it will probably be true of Cohen. Uh, the one I feel hardest for is Manafort because there probably were 10,000 people who got away with stuff in 2007. And the only one who gets fished back again is Manafort. And it's essentially it's troublesome for me to think that that all the information was accumulated as part of the Mueller investigation and then handed off to the uh, Southern District of New York. Uh, that's not the same thing as the Southern District of New York doing it by itself. And I regard this as a way to get beyond the scope of the initial charges. And I don't think that uh, Mueller should have had anything to do with any collateral prosecutions. Richard, don't you just lock Manafort up, though, for the $15,000 ostrich jacket? I mean, that seems well, to I mean, a bummer. It's a no, bummer John, Troy, I, there is no such thing as a crime of bad taste. Oh, there is, Richard, but there oh, is. <laughs> Maybe it's an impeachable offense. I'm seeing some of the president's um, outfits, not that. Although I've noticed the president's hair is less orange these days. I don't know how to parry with that. I, I do not know how to respond we to that. On, you know, we're talking about the salacious and the informant. But am I wrong, John? Have you noticed it as well? And I think he looks better without the orange hair. I actually John, you, your thoughts. Is that his skin color is coming to look like the same color as his hair. I don't know what that means. So that's <laughs> really Bleeding towards each other. All right, I'm going to have to shut it down now because this is going nowhere productive. So, gentlemen, that is our show. Thank you, as always. Thanks to our producer, Scott Immergut, our sponsors at Donors Trust, and, of course, thanks to our great listeners as well as our aggressively average ones. Uh, remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. We will see you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.